Welcome everybody to the Pierce Point Podcast. This podcast is designed to be a thought-provoking journey through the scriptures. Every weekday, my friend and fellow pastor Barney Estes and I walk through the Word of God verse by verse. As always, we'd love to know your thoughts about today's episode. You can hit us up at Pierce Point Church on Facebook or Instagram. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So we're jumping into a uh, very fascinating part of Luke 22, which is a dispute among the disciples as to which one is regarded to be the greatest. And uh, I think that there's there can be a lot of conversation that gets, uh, gets started uh, along the lines of hierarchy, of uh, along the lines of greatest or least in the kingdom of God, especially, uh, especially among uh, Christians. Um, and this is going to really set the stage, I think, for us. Yes, very well. I find it amazing that the... Uh, Jesus has just talked about the one that's going to betray him. He's talking about things that are so weighty that these guys have no idea the weight and the uh, all of the things that Jesus is saying about being betrayed by one of his very own, and they're arguing about which one yeah. is the is the greatest. I, it's amazing. It just seems amazing to think that after Jesus had poured into these guys' lives. At this point, about three years now, and every conceivable circumstance, and he's talking to them about things that are so weighty, and they're like, "Hey, I want to know who's going to be the greatest yes. in the kingdom of heaven." <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a staggering thing that uh, if we're reading this through through any lens, honestly, whether whether an ancient lens or a modern lens, it seems out of place mm-hmm. that that you've got this. You've got this warning of one woe to the one who is going to uh, betray me, you know, uh, to the man by whom he, Jesus, is betrayed. Um, It's funny that verse 23 says, and they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who is going to do this. Uh, so, so there, so there's this doubt on who it is that's actually going to do this. And then the dispute, uh, arises among them as to which one of them is the greatest. Now, if I'm putting this together, here's what I'm seeing. I'm actually seeing that they are worried about who is going to betray a friend, which was a very, um, I believe is, is a, a matter that, affects every culture, but it affected their culture in a very unique way. And I'll share a little bit about that in a second. But um, uh, I believe that they were, they were just told that one is going to betray Jesus. They're wondering who it is. So the argument now is who's the greatest who would never do such mm-hmm. a thing. That seems to be the framework of this. But I love when you just read this on the surface, you're thinking, what in the world? Like, I mean, why on earth are you guys are you guys doing this? But uh, back to the idea of, of um, kind of a betrayal, or, uh, yeah, of, of betraying one close to you. We actually, 
we actually know that uh, David talks about being betrayed by those closest to him in the Psalms mm-hmm. and how that is that is a wound that is greater than any other wound. So this idea of one betraying the Son of Man um, is no small matter to their culture and to their day. So if they heard Jesus say, one of you is going to betray me, they're kind of all panicking and thinking, wait a second, could, th- could this be me? I mean, I, no, I'm, I'm better than that. I'm, I, I've got to be better than that. Just yeah. some thoughts on it. It does seem to fit that, that you've talked about that, that Jesus has been talking about who's going to betray him, and then all of a sudden they get into this idea of who's the greatest. That, is, that was pretty much a, a common uh, topic of conversation among these guys. I mean, we read about it in Matthew 18 and Matthew 20 and Mark 9, right. Luke 9. They had this talk several times, or it's recorded, and, and, and in an odd way, it kind of gives me hope, and I'll tell you how. These men, the closest to him on the earth, you know, they, they, that, and he's talking about things that are heaven and earth hanging in the, in the balance, and they could be so immature and shallow yes. <laughs> that at a time when Jesus was teaching them things that, that they would, would forever recall, and, they're, and they get so, so yeah. caught up in something as seemingly mindless as, well, who's going to be the greatest yeah. here? I think in and, in and of itself, it's, it is a, um, they still can't see that this is about Jesus. Mm-hmm. They look at it as about them. And that's the great tragedy inside of all of this. And I think we can all uh, we can all fall short of that. I, I I think I was going where I think I was uh, tracking where you were going when you said this gives you hope because well we're we're all about the same yes. at times, right? So it's what a sad situation. But uh, yes. um, that passage that I was referring to before, I found my note on it. Psalm forty one verse nine says, "Even my close friend uh, David says, even my close friend in whom I trusted." who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And so this idea of betrayal, uh, sitting at one's table, sitting at a table with somebody was a very tragic thing. I've talked a lot uh, in the recent past about the need to recapture the biblical view of communion and the idea that it has to do with coming to table, coming to table with one another, and you're breaking bread, and you're eating a meal together, and you also have this symbol, as Christians, we have this symbol of of the bread representing Christ's body broken for us, and, and the wine representing his blood shed for us. And the importance of that meal says we live in solidarity with one another. We are one, and we are of the same, uh, the same family, of the same kin, of, of all of that. To have somebody of that table walk away and betray you is a painful betrayal. And so we must understand the weight of what Judas is doing. It was a it was a very heavy matter that was going on here. Mm-hmm. But now we go in to them wondering uh, who that might be, and I think the dispute is who is actually regarded to be the greatest because that one surely couldn't uh, uh, be the betrayer. 
So verse 24 says, And there arose also a dispute among them, as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Notice that line. It says, which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Regarded by whom? I, I think very clearly by the Lord who is mm-hmm. who is sharing this idea. Verse 25, And he said to them, So I, I wonder who th- Jesus thinks is the best. And Jesus chimes in, right? The king of the Gentiles, the kings of the Gentiles, lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. Mm-hmm. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. That That line right there is where a right understanding of what we might call servant leadership comes from. There are wrong versions of servant leadership, but that is uh, that is a powerful line there. Mm-hmm. So right away, they're wondering who's the greatest, and Jesus says, you, you're thinking wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're you're looking at things the way that the world, and he, like he said, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. He, he was teaching them that the world exercises a certain authority or power in a certain way, but Jesus wasn't like that, and neither should those be that followed him. Jesus made it very clear to them, and I, I, I think this is fascinating scripture, that, that the worldly view of greatness what wasn't, wasn't their way. It wasn't Jesus' way. And uh, that I look at this and think that we have to display something far different. If we call ourselves Christians... We have to display in everything that we do something far different or the method needs to be far different than, than what the world displays. We, uh, he, he goes on to show them and tell them how greatness should really be lived out. And, and we, you've said this so, so many times. It's, it's a race to the back of the line. Uh, it's the way that says, I'm going to prefer my brother over myself. Yes. Uh, it's not, it's not the natural way of the world. Yes. I think they're, they're in this discussion. Um, there, uh, t- there is a tendency to, uh, run too far to one side, uh, versus this okay so here here's the issues we've got the lorded over issue but the idea is that we need to then abandon all forms of leadership all forms of structure all forms of anything like this because that wouldn't be the way that Jesus would have us do it but here's the challenge and and I want to say this as gently as I I possibly can the same scripture that tells us that we're not to lord it over each other like the Gentiles do is the same scripture that that gives us the leadership structures of even the church. Mm-hmm. There, there is a leadership structure. There is a, what we use for a term, hierarchy. That's, that's simply a term that we're using. It's the same thing when people call their churches organizations. Do I like it? No. But an organization, an organized thing, you know, an organization is not a, uh, a bad word in and of itself. Here, here's where I'm going with all of this, is that the same scripture that would say, the same Jesus who would say, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over theirs, you aren't to be this way. Uh, is the same God, is the same Christ who 
uses his spirit to inspire Paul later to say, you know, uh, God has given to the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. He's, he's, he's put, uh, uh, God is the head of, uh, God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man and man is the head of woman. That's all of that is order. All of that is leadership order. The question that we have to get to is not, do we like order? The question is, how does the leadership lead? How do they lead? Are we abusing people? Are we berating people? Are we are we actually coming under them to help them? Are we doing what he says in verse 26, which is, are we becoming like the youngest or the leader becoming like the servant? Sure, you're still a leader, but you must be like the servant. So there's two sides to this that get that get conflated a lot. And that is, well, God said, don't, don't lord it over each other like the Gentiles. Therefore, there's no such thing as leadership in the church. You're not reading the Bible. Mm. And then the same thing that says, uh, well, just ignore what Jesus said there. We've, we're allowed to do it if we're pastors. You're not reading the Bible either, mm. right? We've got to be careful with this um, to do it well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the other things that I noted in here was that Jesus used a, uh, uh, there is a concept in their, in their Eastern ancient world that would have said that age was generally gave you privileges and wisdom because age wisdom should come with age. So when he says to, to, to talk about the youth and that he says where, but it is not this way with you, but the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest. Generally, the youngest would have been in their culture, the, the lowliest of, of yep. those. They would have been the least wise, the least privileged. But we, we see, uh, we have a, a thought in our world today that, 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 and and this is this is this is an odd thing. I think that we do we do in general respect our elders and those that have experience and wisdom in the world, but it is not it is not as prevalent as it should be. I think I think we can learn so much from those in our world that have age and wisdom, and not to the not to the exclusion of the young. I've met some very wise younger folks. But but we have to look at this from the worldview that they had at that time, and that Fair young right. generally meant the lowest. Yeah, this this will really this will really uh, fill out the conversation even even more in First Peter five five. Again, this is the same New Testament, same exact spirit inspiring both of these things. First uh, Peter five five says, "You younger men, likewise, be subject to mm-hmm. your elders." And all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's that line there that describes the heart that changes this whole entire matter, and that is to be humble. Uh, Paul would say in Corinthians, he would say, if there is one who considers himself to be wise, and he's not actually berating a person by this, he says, if you consider yourself to be wise, then become a fool so that you can become truly wise. The idea here, and it's that's my paraphrase of that, but but the point that I'm getting at is that anybody in God's kingdom, it doesn't matter if you're older you should become like the younger. What does that mean? You should humble yourself. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something you can learn inside of this situation. Uh, if you're the leader, become like the servant. 
sins. None of us are like, none of us are the Lord, right? We, right. Can, we want to be like him. We want to do those things. Well, if we want to be like him, let's remember that he who uh, knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He who had all of the power of heaven didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, uh, but condescended. He came down to earth to, to, uh, to be tempted like us and to, and to walk this life like us and to serve as this example and then to die uh, sacrificially for our sins and, and to, to bring us life. So, so the idea here is that we've got to be careful just because uh, just because we're not supposed to lord it over each other doesn't mean there aren't leaders. There are leaders. Mm-hmm. That's very clear. But if you're a leader, you're not doing it right if all you ever do is um, is show everybody or, or treat everybody as though they are less than you. Mm-hmm. It's just, mm-hmm. which is the problem with their very heart in the beginning, right? The dispute among them was who is the greatest? Well, the scripture, the scripture will, will, give us the fact that there will be the greatest and the least in the kingdom of God. Take parallel those for a second. That's a fascinating idea. The The scripture tells us there are the greatest and the least in the kingdom of God. It's not about whether or not there are or are not greatest or least. The point is the humility that you allow God to establish that position mm-hmm. for you. Uh, now, I'll tell you, that's where faith comes in because that's a hard place it's a hard place to live Absolutely. to say, God, you, you put me where you want me. I love the fact that Jesus is teaching them things that, that goes against their, their thoughts on things. It goes against when we, they use a term in verse 25, he uses a term that we don't hear a lot anymore in our world, benefactors. Yes. And, and the idea of a benefa- benefactor, just a title put on somebody who, who for some prominent meritorious achievement or public public service but I, I I think what Jesus is saying here is that the idea of being a benefactor in that in that world is really the idea of who's going to get credit for this yeah. who's going to get credit for what we're doing here and 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 Jesus is saying that many many people will only serve if they get the credit or if they're out front where they can be seen and, and be assured of getting that proper credit. Uh, Jesus is, is saying that's, that's not the way with you. That should not be the way with you. (laughs) So this is, this is contrary to their worldview. And it's, it's even contrary to our worldview. We, we see people, prominent people who say, uh, look at, look at how we elect presidents and it's generally those that say I have done better than anybody else has done. Now don't get me wrong there's there's truth to be had in, in maybe all of those from all of those that would be in that world but but that's Jesus is saying that that's not it's not it's not about who's getting the credit for yeah. something. Yeah so so if we take that idea that you just pre- put forward and we analyze the text itself 
uh, it really it really fleshes out that idea. So the verb there before benefactors, the called verb, okay, um, this verb is actually written in the Greek. It's written in the passive, and it can be interpreted the way the NASB translates it right here, which is are called benefactors. But the NIV, I'm, I believe, actually translates it correctly here, and that is that it can also be rendered as call themselves benefactors. Mm, mm-hmm. And benefactors in this time, uh, along with what you just shared, was uh, a term that was describing, uh, could describe a god or could describe a hero, could describe, you know, some, somebody of stature, uh, a king even in this situation. Now think about this. I'm just going to read it again with that lens and show you how this was all about who gets credit. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them call themselves kings. Mm-hmm. And you guys are wondering who's the greatest. See, your problem is you're wondering you're, you're worried about a title. You're worried about you're worried about your uh, your kingship or your your hero status here. You're missing it. Are you going to get the credit for it? That's what you're. That's what you're worried about. So even the text kind of um, just fleshes out that same exact idea. But Jesus is going to throw this whole thing uh, up under because he's going to use himself as the example. And I I always love it when he does this because it really it really messes with people. I love when people talk about what men should, how men should lead. I love when people talk about how men should lead. And my my response when it comes to how men should lead is, if it is anything short of everything Jesus said, you're still doing it wrong, right? So we can talk about men being strong and being assertive and taking the hill and all those things. That's all perfectly fine. There's also the fact that Jesus was the man of men and Jesus waited tables. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating thing that we like to talk about what it means to be a man. It's true. We need to capture that. We need to regain that. We kind of bite at that in our culture today. But Jesus is going to show us that if if that picture is not full, then you don't have a good picture. Mm -hmm. So verse 27, he says, for who is greater the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Now, notice that Jesus actually says you have to know who the greater is. The one reclining at the table mm-hmm. is, in all, in all senses, he is the greater. But I am among you as the one who serves. In other words, I am the greatest and I am come to serve you, mm-hmm. right? So he just flips this thing around constantly. So you want a leader? He must be a servant. You want to know where we prove this from? Jesus's own words. Yeah, yeah. They, they lived in a world not unlike, in this sense, not unlike ours, and that our culture and their culture People and throughout, and I suspect it will be this way for a long time to come. They've always envied the person whom others serve. They feel like that that's the great. That's that's what the the greater one is. Uh, I liked I liked an analogy that was used. It was said that the people who are really great in our world are generally the servants. And they said if the president takes off for a month no one's really going to miss anything in their day-to-day lives. But if all the trash collectors 
took took a month off. Everybody's going to notice. Yeah, yeah. So it's Jesus is trying to rearrange their thinking about who who is greater. And I loved the thought on on the benefactor because that was a self proclaimed title for those kings that you talked about. That was they called themselves yes. that, as you said. So uh, this whole thing is turning this whole mess, Absolutely. this world, this way of thinking upside down. And I, I, you have to. I almost feel sorry for these guys in a sense because it has got to be just completely beyond anything they can ever imagine in their head. Well, uh, one of the things that I find amazing about Jesus' method is that he is yet again, uh, or I should I should say it different, I should say I am yet again unlike my Savior in this, in that we look at this from an outside perspective. We look at this with hindsight and we go, how could these guys have been so stupid? And yet Jesus in the middle of that, he doesn't overreact. Yeah. He doesn't fly off the handle. His his emotions, his mind all under control. And he actually just responds to them and gives them a perfect example of what needs to happen. So I just, I I love how Jesus responds. I want to do that better. When somebody asks, and and I know that this is going to sound, you know, trite maybe, but, you know, when somebody asks a stupid question, I want to be able to say, Okay, let's get to the heart of why that question was there. It's really easy in my in my heart and in my attitude to go, that's the stupidest thing I've yeah. ever heard. But I think the best way to respond to it is to be just like Jesus in this and say, let me give you let me give you a story. Who's who's greater, the guy who reclines at the table or the servant? Obviously the one who reclines at the table, but I who am the greatest. I've come to serve you. So just a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. So verse 28, he says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. I love Jesus is acknowledging his own disciples, right? Mm-hmm. You are those mm-hmm. who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I think all we know for for certain here is that he does not include uh, Judas in that, right? Right. But he does talk about 12. That would make 11. What is going to happen there? We don't we don't exactly know, okay, what, what's going to happen there. We know that according to Acts, there's a, the election of a new apostle in Matthias. So so maybe maybe that's the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, many conjecture that it's the apostle Paul. I, I, I tend to disagree on that. Um, but nonetheless, I love this statement here that Jesus just promised them something that you and I would jump up and down to have mm-hmm. promised to us. Mm-hmm. It has been promised to us mm-hmm. through the gospel. But, but I mean, face to face with Jesus, he says, just as my father granted me a kingdom, I grant to you that you can eat and drink mm-hmm. at my table mm-hmm. in my kingdom. Yeah. What? Yeah. He's teaching them things that, that they had to just, I'm not sure they were grasping at this time. They, they just, they're, they're trying to, uh, really grasp everything he's saying, but this had to be shocking to them in so many ways. They didn't. They they wanted that kingdom right then. They wanted that now. They wanted to be though. They wanted to be the great ones, and uh, 
And then, you know, somewhere in the midst of all this, we read in John 13 that somewhere in this, some, and I don't know at what point it was in the story as we read it in Luke, but Jesus starts to wash their feet at some point during this, yes. right, in, right in the midst of all this, about this time. And, and they have to be thinking, oh, oh my gosh, all this stuff about being a servant, is this what he's talking about? Yeah. Is this what we're supposed to do? And if you read the account of that in John, it's like, yeah, that's what yeah. he was saying. I think when we when we parallel this with, say, uh, what we read in Ephesians or even in Corinthians when we're talking about husbands and wives and and how there's this there's this echo in Ephesians that talks about um, that talks about the the that Jesus is washing his bride with the word and sanctifying her. And that the parallel there is what a husband is to do uh, to his wife. And the idea is the exact same that we have here with Jesus with a basin and a towel. He's come down to a level that the filthy part of, of this era's people, right? So Jesus would say in, in other gospels, as you referenced, he would say in other gospels, uh, when Peter says, well, if you've got to wash me, then wash mm-hmm. all of me. And, and Jesus says, it's, you know, the whole of you doesn't need washed. It's your feet that are dirty. It's your feet that get, that get worn. The, they're the ones that, you know, and so I'm washing those. And the idea here is that, um, he comes to do this, to cleanse them and to, and to keep them moving forward. And the same thing is supposed to happen between husbands and wives. This is what it means to lead as a servant, uh, to, you know, to, um, to be mutually submissive in, in, in one respect, uh, according to the scriptures. But, um, just an absolutely amazing truth here. Uh, an amazing example. It is Jesus in the best way possible. You see him for all that he should be and is. And we go, uh Oh, I got a lot to learn about how I lead because he comes under in every way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just amazing. Yeah, it is. And he, he's, he's giving them, his view of his kingdom and what it means to be in his kingdom and how it's it's the servants and he and they he's clearly said to them look you I am here the the greater of these is at the table if they want if you want to know who's the greatest then then I I could probably help you with that yeah. and, and because I'm here but I want you to be a servant and I want and I so I will be a servant. I'll yeah. show you what that means. Exactly. It's just just amazing. Yeah. So the the leader in this case uh, became like the servant. Uh, the older brother here became the youngest. You know, mm. if you want to if you want to put all of these kind of parallels into uh, into the same story. So then this promise comes, and he says that uh, you're going to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, that that line there is fascinating to me because you have to you have to imagine that they would have thought. What in the world are you talking about? Yeah. Um, why why would we judge the twelve tribes of Israel? What what does that mean? You know, uh, 
Paul would say elsewhere in his writings, he says, don't you know that we we are to judge angels? And I love how N.T. Wright responds to that. He says, you want to say, no, Paul, we didn't know that. (laughs) We had no idea that that was the case. The same thing sitting here, they're sitting with Jesus and they're they're squabbling over who gets the highest position and all of this other stuff. And Jesus calms their hearts and, and settles them with this. He says, you're all going to eat and drink at my table, and you're all going to judge the twelve tribes, sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, you have look right there. I know that everybody wants to wants to deal with these kinds of hierarchy things. Right there, they're sitting on thrones judging over top of mm-hmm. other people. There's mm-hmm. hierarchy. It's all over the Bible. The problem yet again is not in whether or not there's leadership. The problem is how the leader leads. Mm -hmm. And that is our biggest issue Mm -hmm. here. So we've got the promise. We've got this status that they've got. That's a calming of their hearts because of what was happening before. And then we've got the strangest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once, uh, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, that says a whole lot in, a, lot. Uh, in a small passage of Scripture. What stands out so, to you there? There was obviously some spiritual battle going on. And then Jesus uh, says to him in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, the interesting piece of this is that in the Greek, the you, that you is plural. It's not singular. So what Jesus, it seems to be that he's saying is that, and telling Simon Peter that Satan has demanded to sift all of the disciples right. that, and that not just him. So this had to be uh, 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 quite, quite an amazing statement because I, I don't, it doesn't seem like they knew this at that point. Right. I think one of the things that they may have understood better than we do uh, is that our English translations read, and this is a very complex idea that it would take it would take hours to unpack, but I'll do it slowly over time. But verse 31, when it says, Simon, Simon, behold, the translation... Uh, in the Greek, is Simon, Simon, behold, the Satan has demanded permission to sift y'all mm-hmm. like wheat, okay, to, to sift y'all. The Satan is this term that is used over and over throughout Scripture to, re- to refer to the accuser. Okay, and so the accuser of the brethren, the one who stands before God, the closest reference or analogy that maybe we have to this is Job. Uh, in Job, where where the devil is, um, where the Satan yet again is permitted to test Job. Right. This is this is the idea. Um, we see this throughout the New Testament. It's also the the terminology that we see in, um, I believe it is Jude when the when the debate is between Michael the archangel and the Satan. The idea that I'm getting at here is that the accuser is wanting to sift. Okay. But he's wanting to sift all of the disciples and he is telling Peter, it seems, because Peter was often the spokesman for the disciples. Mm -hmm. And he often went to Peter and told him things that were going to happen. 
But he reassures Peter in this powerful line when he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when, and this this term, and you, uh, seems to go back into the singular, when you, uh, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So now he's talking to Peter, and he says to Peter, you have a responsibility to strengthen your brothers, but you're going to strengthen your brothers because all of you are going to be sifted. Mm-hmm. And we see this, that Jesus would say, there's not one of you that's going to, that's going to stand faithfully with me. You're all going to deny me before the end. But there's a more magnificent way that Peter seems to do it because Peter does everything on a larger scale. (laughs) And it seems to be that Christ was saying to him in this whole thing, you're going to be okay. You're going to, it's going to work out. It's, it's not going to be fun. And I'm, but I've prayed for you, but, but this, but the idea of that when you have turned again, when you have turned again and, and to a right way of thinking about Christ uh, you can strengthen your brothers. We, he, he doesn't want his faith to fail. Jesus didn't want it to fail. Now his faith certainly faltered, mm-hmm. and he, but it, but it, it didn't fail him. If we, and once he turned, then he could use that experience and what he learned in that to help to help those guys because they were going to need it as well. Without doubt. So before we move into more of this, it's really important to note that as the NASB reads in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, the Satan has demanded permission to sift you. That word demanded literally translates obtained by asking. Yeah. Uh, Satan doesn't demand anything of God in any other way. It, he, he goes to him by asking and God either does it or God doesn't. And just as we gave allusion to the Job story where Job is, or where the Satan is allowed to, uh, to test Job. This is the same situation, it seems, happening here. So uh, verse 32 is the reassurance. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you, uh, fail. And you, when once you have turned again, because he's even telling him you will, you're going to, you're going to run, but you're going to turn again, strengthen your brothers. Um, verse 33, but he said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Sure. That sounds great, Peter. (laughs) It's not true, but that sounds great, Peter. Um, I think all of us have this, have this, uh, feeling at times where we would, we would take on the world for our faith. Um, if it's just in ourselves, we would run. That's the fact of it. It's, he seems to feel pretty confident here, and, and feeling is probably the key word for me. This Peter wasn't aware of everything that was going on, obviously. He wasn't aware of the spiritual battle that Jesus was seeing and was dealing with, and he seemed to be looking at how he felt. He felt like he could take on the world right then, and how he felt at that moment, which was pretty brave. I'm ready to go to, with both to prison and to death. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it is always interesting. I have said before, and I believe this, I believe that, uh, you can't always, uh, seldom even, I would venture to say, go on how you feel about something because certainly your emotions and feelings are, have so many influences and they will lie to you. They will, they, they cannot be 
trusted many times. Absolutely. So while Peter felt very brave at that moment, he's we 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 know that very soon he's going to be in intimidated by a servant girl when he's asked about his standing with yeah. Jesus. Yeah. I, I, it's a feeling you cannot rely on your feelings. Absolutely. We we saw the exact same thing when we studied the story of James and John and wanting to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus, right? And they, and they felt that they were ready. And Jesus says, can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink from or can you can you be baptized in the baptism that I'm about to go through? And both of those things were references to horrible situations, both his death and and burial, um, and and the punishment of the crucifixion that would would happen. And they both felt they could, so they said, "We can." You know, um, the the truth of the matter is that. Uh, Peter will go to prison and to death for Jesus. But it's going to happen at a different time after this event. The same thing happens to James and John. Sure, they went through his baptism and they went through his uh, his suffering at a very different time, and it was after the after Pentecost, and it was after they had been transformed. So, so very important pieces there. I loved your point, though. Um, our feelings are valid. There are there are valid times and need for our feelings. God made us as people who have emotions and feelings. But we must be careful. God also made us as a people with hearts. Now, I don't mean the pumping blood machine in our chest, but I mean God God gave us this kind of epicenter from which our our life flows, and he says that it's desperately wicked. Mm. He, he says that it can deceive us and that it, it, that it needs help. It doesn't mean that it's useless. It just means that it needs to be redeemed, and the same thing happens with our feelings. They need to be redeemed so that we can operate in them properly. Absolutely. So verse 34, he says, I say to you, Peter... The rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with, uh, without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you, that this, uh, I tell you that this, which is written, must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. And that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, I've heard people use this as a really dumb uh, argument that says, finally, Jesus turned away from his pacifism and he told people to buy swords. And so we can be gun owners and all this other stuff. You can be gun owners because you're a shrewd person and wise, right? That's fine. This idea here had nothing to do with a modern day argument. Uh, this idea was that Jesus was supposed to be numbered among the transgressors. And so if they had swords, if they, if they had these money bags, if they had these money belts, if they had these coats, all of these things, they were going to be seen as these rabble rousers. They were going to be seen as these, tra- uh, as these um, transgressors. And Jesus must be named among them. So he says, go ahead and go do all that stuff so that I can be labeled the way I'm supposed to be labeled. Mm-hmm. It's just an interesting Completely thing. Completely a fulfillment of the uh, prof- uh, prophecies that were, that were talking about Christ when he was going to be betrayed. And, and 
I, I, I want to go back for a second to when Absolutely. he talked about in, in verse 34, and, and, and he, he, tells, he tells Peter when Peter says, hey, look, I'm ready to, I'll go to jail, I'll die for you. And, and he says to him that the rooster's not going to crow today until you've denied me three times. Now, it, it, Jesus didn't say this. It almost looks like a uh, discouragement to Peter and say, you have no idea. But he was he, he was telling him the truth about the situation, not to discourage him, but to let him know that there's a there's a spiritual battle that he's unaware of. Once again, he's not seeing the things that Jesus is seeing, and I, I it almost says to me it it says that we we can't we can't always be sure and rely on our own strength or our own know-how, our own wisdom or what we can do with our set. But we, if, unless we rely on the power of God, the, the, the very power that's standing in front of him at this time, we we're probably going to come up short. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another study note, a study thing worth, worth noting here is that Luke's account differs slightly from Mark's account and Matthew's account. Uh, Mark and Matthew both say that Peter would disown Jesus. That's the term that is used there, that they that, that he would disown Jesus. Luke says that he would deny knowing Jesus. Now, there's been a lot of uh, argument, debate, uh, on what it is that Luke is trying to communicate versus what uh, Mark and Matthew were trying to communicate. But here's what we know that Here's what we know uh, Luke is, is, is showing us. Luke 12, 9 says, But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. He is not talking about a denial like that here, mm. right? Mm-hmm. He is not talking about a denial that Jesus actually is who he says he is. It is a denial or it is a... Um, it is a uh, denying to know Jesus. It's a saving face. It's a, it's a, it's a coward move. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what it seems Luke is pointing out. You got to remember that Luke's audience is going to a far broader audience. Mark and Matthew's gospels are both going to hit Jewish people in their larger context. They're going to, they're going to speak to that Jewish audience. Luke is going to speak both to Jew and Gentile. He's going to, the book of Acts is going to go further. Um, He's writing to a Gentile anyway in Theophilus. So all of this kind of stuff is, is, is being crafted very intentionally to not confuse people. So when, when Luke says, uh, you would deny knowing Jesus, I think we'll, I think we need to take away from that the right understanding of what's being, being done here. Because what Peter does not do is what we read in Luke 12, 9. He does not deny Jesus before men that, and therefore is denied before the mm-hmm. angels of God. Otherwise, Jesus is lying. Right. Jesus is not telling the truth. There's something bigger going on there. So this just gives you an insight into the, into the smaller debates uh, that go on within the texts of Scripture and how things are worded, uh, because we're, we're all trying to understand what was written several thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the fact that you talked uh, uh, clearly about verse 36 and 37, because there is so much debate, and it's been going on mm-hmm. for eons of time, over scripture, over these uh, 
Scripture and the words that Christ says here. So you will read, if you're reading in commentaries, and you will see so many different variations of the reasoning behind what Jesus is saying that it, it'll make your head swim. Yes. And there are so many views of this that are that 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 go from being kind of far fetched to some are just plain odd yes. and don't know how it would ever fit. So keeping that in mind, I'm glad you you pointed this out because Jesus was about doing what was prophesied uh, yes. for him and the prophecies, and he was going to stick with that. We we never want to forget that it, it, when all else fails, as you've said, go back to the scripture and see exactly what's what what's being said and what's being done here because it will follow along with the prophecies that are talked yes. about, about about Jesus. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the, the, the varying interpretations there have definitely made my head spin uh, because what we do is we run, into the, we run into the quintessential 21st century problem, and that is we read our uh, political issues and cultural issues and American mindset, Western thoughts, and all of those things into this ancient text. And we'll say things like, you know, finally, Jesus turned it around and said, you can be, you can do whatever it is that you want to do. Jesus isn't thinking about the Second Amendment in America. He doesn't care. He's not thinking about any of those things. The idea is he has a prophecy in his mind, and he was numbered with transgressors. Whether this was to be a zealot call, you know, the call to arms for, for the zealots. Make no mistake, he didn't tell his men, he didn't tell these disciples to do wrong things. He said, I want you to go and do these things because I have to be, this is the appearance I have. Mm-hmm. I, the appearance is he was numbered with the transgressors. These guys are transgressors. These He's he's among the rabble rousers yeah. again. That's the point of all of this. And, and, and this would have this would have been proven wrong shortly hereafter when Peter takes out the sword in the garden and cuts off the, the servant of the, of the high priest, cuts off his ear, and Jesus stops him and heals that servant's ear. If, if this was about taking up the sword and Jesus saying, well, now you, we've got to physically fight, we're done with all the pacifist stuff, he would have completely contradicted himself in what he did when, whenever Peter broke out the sword in the garden. Yeah. So keeping in mind, Jesus is not going to contradict himself, and that is clear. That would be clear contradiction. One of the, one of the commentaries that I read on this talked about, uh, <laughs> talked about the sword here was in a metaphorical sense because Jesus was telling them to go out with the sword of the Spirit and all this other stuff. Well, that doesn't explain how Peter got a real one and exactly. cut the guy's ear off, yeah. right? So it, the, the point of me bringing that up is we go to absurd levels to interpret things, to make them fit into this folder that makes us feel okay with God's Word. The truth is, God's Word is hard to understand at times. It's not impossible, right? right. But it it is hard to understand at times where you would say something like, well, well, why would he change his opinion here? Now, nothing about the words on the page are hard to understand. It's the it's the point that's hard to understand. So you go, well, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, I believe that verse 37 answers the very question for us, and it gives us that understanding. And truth be told that after Peter does this um, moment, you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, everybody scatters, mm-hmm. and Peter's gone too. So he, Jesus is 
counted among the transgressors. He's numbered among the transgressors. It doesn't mean they ever prosecuted the transgressors. It, but you can bet your bottom dollar that they were going, his ear was missing mm-hmm. and Jesus put it back on, mm-hmm. but their guys were wielding swords. They are transgressors. That idea was, was clearly there. Well, that's it for today, guys. And if you would, please like and share this podcast with your friends. And finally, remember 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work.